you don't know me, my name's Stuart Sarr, I'm the lead pastor at New Life Anglican Church where you've turned up this morning and it's my great pleasure uh, to be opening up this part of God's Word for you. As we uh, continue our series in Exodus, I wanted to start with a, a question for you. Uh, do you have any rules in your family? Do you have any rules in your family? Ones that sort of help organise your household. Uh, has anyone got any rules that they, they'd like to call out? Ones that they really like? Can't steal food from the fridge. I like it, Mandy. That's, that's excellent. Obviously, it's curtailing a particular problem that, uh, that you see there. Uh, but that's great. Thank you. Excellent. Someone else? Just talking about Toby, not me. Toby, not you. Oh, yeah, sure. Okay. No, that's, uh, that is very helpful. Sorry, I was thinking of you, Matthew. Um, someone else, a rule in your household. Well, while you're thinking, I'm going to tell you a couple. Uh, th- these were, I put this on my Facebook page and people just went crazy chucking them in. So here's, here's a couple. Uh, if you don't eat your meat, you don't have any pudding. Um, flush every time. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Bernie. That's a good one. Uh, you, need to, you need to tithe 10%. You need to save 10% of your pocket money. Uh, that's from a friend of mine who's a financial advisor. You'll be surprised to know. Um, uh, I'll feed you once you've fed the animals. I like that. I think that one's, uh, that one's pretty cool. Uh, you wake the baby, you take the baby. <laughs> Makes sense, doesn't it? <laughs> That's very good. And uh, this one from Lauren I loved was uh, Nutella and Cocoa Pops only on Saturdays. <laughs> uh, it's fantastic. Uh, so uh, we, we're coming to a part of God's Word where we're going to be looking at laws and, and we're going to be thinking about it uh, as the household, as the family of God. And uh, it's good to start with some rules uh, in our families. So what's the setup? What's the setup for this book that we've been working through, this book of Exodus? And uh, Matthew's brought us some of that with the kids' talk. Uh, he gave us this idea of a God box, that we're learning who God is through the book of Exodus, that we're filling up our understanding of who God is and coming to understand him better. So we see the book starts with the people of God in slavery. Uh, and uh, God meets with Moses in the burning bush and tells him, you're my man, you're going to do something about this slavery. And he sends him to Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world at that time, and says, hey, Pharaoh, let your slaves go. Let them go and be a nation. Uh, That doesn't work out so swimmingly. He decides not to let them go. So God sends nine plagues on them, all of which he says, no, 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 yes, no, yes, yes, no, no, yes. In, In essence, it doesn't work out well, and God systematically through the plagues defeats any sense that there are gods in Egypt. He alone is the God of all the earth. And then uh, Matthew told us about the Passover, the 10th plague, uh, where God finally judged Egypt and killed the firstborn and yet passed over his own people, keeping them safe because they obeyed him and trusted him. The people then left, and after they've left, Pharaoh changes his mind and goes, ah, made a terrible mistake, sends the chariots out after them. Looking like defeat is staring them in the face, God saves them miraculously through the sea and leads them through to the other side. Having done that, the people get to the other side and start grumbling, which is, I think, our default position, isn't it? Uh, And uh, Matthew told us last week that God graciously provided for them the manna and the quail um, and the water that they needed, even though they're in a desolate place. So the question goes, that's all great. Why? 
Why did God go to all that trouble? What was it that God was trying to do by all this amazing amount of effort? Well, I want, I want you to just see, uh, if you turn uh, to Exodus, we're good to have Exodus open anyway. Have a look with me um, at Exodus, and I think we're going to have a look at uh, chapter 8, verse 1. So Exodus chapter 8, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and say to him, This is what the Lord says, Let my people go so that they may worship me. Let the people go so that they may worship me. What's the purpose of all this activity? God is saving a people for himself, and his purpose is that they might worship him. In fact, it says it in 716, 81, 8.20, 9.1, and 10.3, in case we're all slow learners and we hadn't realised that that's what God was doing. Let my people go that they may worship me. So what's happening here is we've got the living God wanting not just to speak to Pharaoh, but to speak to his people. And so he's drawn them, as Matthew showed us last week, to this place here. And uh, I love uh, this picture, Matt, so I took it off your presentation from last week. Here's a photo of Mount Sinai. And it is a desolate and scary looking place, isn't it? It really is. And, uh, and uh, Matt also found this picture during the week. This is a picture of, uh, of the crowd gathered before the mountain. And we reckon it must, be, must have been upwards of, uh, upwards of a million people who were there. That, that's a lot. It's even bigger than this room. Imagine that. Uh, that's a, that would be a really big church, exactly, Matthew. Um, so there it is. And, and uh, whatever we make of the size of the, uh, the guy sitting on top of the mountain there, um, God is awesomely going to meet with his people who are gathered at the foot of the mountain. That's where we've come to today in the book of Exodus. God's people saved from the land before the mountain, about to hear God speak to them. And, uh, and this is how God speaks to them. He sets it up for them so that they know what it looks like to come before the living God. So if you go to chapter 19, and I'm going to read verses uh, 10 to 12. So chapter 19 and verses 10 to 12. And the Lord said to Moses... <laughs> Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready for the thir- by the third day. Because on that day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountains and tell them, be careful you do not approach the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain is to be put to death. Hey, look at the next verse. It's incredible. They are to be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on them. No personal animal shall be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they approach the mountain. What's the point? I mean, that sounds scary, doesn't it? I mean, you can't even go over to kill the people who do the wrong thing. You've got to stay back. You've got to stay back. It's a dangerous thing to come into the presence of the living God. And so the point here is that God is holy and his holiness means that caution has to be the way Sinful people approach God. Caution has to be the way that sinful people approach God. You cannot just rock up. It's dangerous for people full of sin to meet the living God. And so he says you need to put physical barriers around and you need to make sure. In fact, Moses at the end is quoting God back to himself. Hey God, yep, yep, we got you. We're not supposed to go on the mountain. How do I know that? Because you told me before. And we put the barriers up. We understand it's dangerous to meet with you, God. 
The people need to consecrate themselves, make themselves clean and be set apart in order to meet with the living God. Well, what does this section sound like, this section that we're looking at here in Exodus? Uh, I'm going to guess that you won't know what it sounds like because I, I don't think you'll have even heard the words I'm about to say. But for the people who heard it the first time, here's what it will have sounded like. Everyone, everyone's got one of those in the cupboard, don't they? It's a, uh, it's a suzerain vassal treaty. Oh, sure. Yep, just add water and they go in the microwave. <laughs> what, what on earth is that? But what, what it is, it's a, it's a form for how a great power engages with a lesser power. It's basically a contractual agreement that says, I've beaten you and here's how we're going to live together. It's our formal contract of agreement. I'm the dominant <laughs> power, you're the submitting power, and that is the way that we're going to do it. And so uh, I was doing some work and found that Ramses II uh, set up one of these treaties with a Hittite nation. And basically it has these kind of shapes to it. It has a, uh, it has a history bit, which sort of says what has gone before, with a bit of a preamble. It has stipulations, this is what you must do. It has uh, some encouragement to keep reading this law that we put in place. And it has some outcomes if you don't do it. So, so in this um, one between Egypt and the Hittites, the history says, look, there used to be peace between our two nations. But then my brother, it's, the, it's the, uh, the, the next king, my brother then decided to be some sort of hero and rebel against you guys, and you squashed us. And now we've decided to make peace with you. That, that's the preamble in this, in this treaty uh, that Ramses II makes. But the next bit is uh, the stipulations. And what they basically say is, if you see anyone from our country running to your country and they've done the wrong thing, you need to hand them over. And we'll do the same for you. Basically, it sets out a bunch of rules for how the two countries are going to live together. It then says, uh, we're going to keep reading this. We're going to keep reading this. And the witnesses to the fact that we've made this law together are the thousands of gods in your Hittite country and the thousands of gods in our Egyptian country. They're the ones who are going to make sure that we keep reading this law. And then lastly, it's got some outcomes. And basically what it says, if any of us doesn't keep this agreement that we put in place, may the thousands of gods in each of our countries come and destroy your house. Okay. Sounds pretty serious. Now, what I want to show you as uh, I was doing some reading is that what we're looking at here in this section of Exodus actually works out very similarly. It says the treaty is between Yahweh, the great mighty power, and Israel, his people. It has some introductory stuff, which we're going to have a look at, the history in in verses 1 to 4. It has a bit of a preamble in verses 5 to 6. It has a bunch of stipulations from chapter 20 to chapter 23. And then it has some encouragements to be reading it again and again in chapter 24 and some outcomes in 23, uh, 20 to 23. So what I'm saying to you is you might not sit there and go, ah, suzerain vassal treaty, yeah, sure. But if you were alive at this time and place, you would have recognised this is the great power making an agreement for how we're to relate, to relate with a lesser power. Okay? Now, now, your brains are all full and we haven't even got started yet, but there you go. That's the shape of this section of the book of Exodus. Okay? It's a contract, an agreement between a great power and a lesser power. So let's have a look at the history. This is the setting up of that agreement. So if you have a look with me at verses 1 to 4 of uh, chapter 19. So then Moses... Uh, 
uh, verse 3, Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the descendants of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Aside from anything else, this is glorious. Uh, and, and Moses just saved us a little revision that I just did. Uh, he did a lot more quickly, didn't he? He said, I saved you by eagle's wings out of Egypt. You've seen it. Okay, well done. That's good. That's the summary. That's the preamble, the history. So, so what's it telling us? Well, firstly, it speaks to the descendants. You see here, it says, the descendants of Jacob. Why say that? Well, because... Actually, this group of people have a prior history. Even before I saved them, I made a covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. Who am I speaking to? I'm speaking to the people who God's already made a covenant to. There's a history of promise that the people of God already have. God is faithful to his covenant. That's the first thing we learn. Second thing that we learn is that God saves. How does he save? It's such a beautiful picture. Lord of the Rings. Yeah, yeah, one ring to say them all. That's very good. Thank you, Annabelle. Um, Lord of the Rings, uh, they're they're dying on the side of Mount uh, of of Mordor, um, and they're in the lava flow and whatever. How do they get saved right at the end, the hobbits? Eagles. Do you remember that scene? The eagles come and pluck them up, and they fly to safety on eagles' wings. Now, you better believe that that is a wonderful image for us. God saves his people on eagles' wings. It's just just beautiful. The the, the rescue of God is pictured as plucked from disaster. That's our God saving us. What a beautiful picture of his salvation. Saved as on eagles' wings. That's part of the history. God saved you. The third thing that we learn here is God saved you not because of anything that you'd done. It's absolutely his grace that saves you. God saved you on eagle's wings, not because you were better than anyone else, but because he chose you. You are saved by grace, people of Israel. Well, that's the background. That's the history. That's the introduction to our little treaty that's being set up here. Well, what about the preamble? Have a look with me at verses 5 to 6. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. Now this is pretty cool. It's setting up the treaty and it's saying, I will engage with you in this wonderful way. What is God looking for? He's looking for obedience. If you obey me. If you obey me, the heart of the way God is setting up their relationship is you will need to obey me. After all, he's the dominant power and you're the lesser power. It's not really an opt-in thing. I might choose to obey you. It's like I'm your boss and your response, the right response that you should have is obedience. And I made it be a nice little girl so we didn't think it was all military. It is offered willingly, but it's absolutely the, the right response. You are to obey me, obey the living God. Uh, The second point is that there to be a kingdom of priests. Now, did you notice this? Uh, God's actually about to set aside some people to be priests, but his big picture is, I want everyone to be a kingdom of priests. Now, that sounds pretty cool. Maybe everyone gets a dog collar. Wonderful. Not the point at all. It's not about that. 
What it means is that you may be for me people who reflect my glory back. So that's why we've got the, uh, the picture of the solar farm there. Reflecting the glory back. Okay? What are you to be, people of God? You are to be reflectors of my glory. People are supposed to look in the mirror and see the face of our Heavenly Father shining back. Why would God want a kingdom of priests? See, you can think they will be his treasured possession, but what's the point of having a kingdom of priests? That they may spread his fame around the whole earth. So I love this, right? Here's our, here's our treaty being made. It's for Israel to be a treasured possession, and yet at the heart of it is a concern for the whole world. If you're to be a kingdom of priests, surely the whole world must have to hear this message. The third thing is that they're supposed to be a holy nation. And I've got up here the white room, you know, the, the, the clean room, the no speck or spot. That's what they were supposed to be, a holy nation set aside for God, spotless and blameless, a non-distorted mirror that they can truly reflect his glory. So God's going to tell them, I want you to be a holy nation. You've got to be set apart. You need to be pure. You need to be changed. That's what I'm looking for for my people. Well, that's all good. What are the stipulations? How does God say for his people to live? Have a look with me at uh, chapter 20. You'll notice we didn't read chapter 20. Uh, you might, of course, if you've been in life groups, you would have read it this week probably. Uh, it says this, And God spoke all these words, chapter 20, verse 1. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall. Did you notice it says it again here? It says who God is and says what he's done and now it tells them what they should do. It's, it's almost the whole setup just crunched down to one verse. God spoke these words. It, it's interesting. Most of the time, God tells Moses to tell them. The awesome thing about the Ten Commandments is the people are standing before God on the mountain. Did you get this picture when it was being read for us? There's thunder and lightning on the mountain. There's a loud trumpet blast and... In all of that fire and burning, God speaks these words to the people. So not just Moses going, hey guys, let you in a little bit of a secret here. God told me something. This is, oh my goodness, God is speaking to us in fire on top of the mountain. It is awesome. So these are the stipulations that God speaks. Uh, it's worth saying, uh, think, think back to your family rules. Okay, Think back to your family rules. If someone, uh, Mandy, goes to your house and doesn't eat from the fridge, right? Let's say that they did that because they're good people. Uh, let's say that they go and they feed the pets. Uh, they, they, they do all the rules of the household. Do they become a member of the household by keeping the laws? They might not get kicked out of the household, but you don't get adopted into the family by keeping the laws. Can you see this? The laws are for the family. Other people might do the laws of the family, but they aren't made part of the family by doing the laws. The laws show the people of the family how to live. This is really important. Obedience to the laws don't save us. So they don't show you how to get into the family, but to show that you're in I'm part of the family because I obey the laws of the family. But you don't get into the family by doing them. Does that make sense? This is quite different. So if you've thought that you need to just obey what God says and you'll be part of the family, that's not true. He'll adopt you by grace 
And then you'll show you're part of his family by living under the family rules. Does that make sense? That's helpful. Good. Okay, so given that, do you know the Ten Commandments? Close your Bibles. Want to hear a little big slap. Do you know your Ten Commandments? How are we doing? Anyone got some? Just call them out. Very good. Thank you. You shall have no other gods. Well, that's a good start. Do you want me in order? I don't care. Uh, someone call them out. Do not steal. Do not steal. Okay, you've got that one? Obey your, Obey your mum and dad. I love this one. That's good. Yes? Do not lie. Don't covet. Don't worship idols. Keep the Sabbath holy. Yep. Did I do it already? I'm not sure. can't remember. Anyway. Okay, good. Do not murder. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. There must be one more. Make no idols. Do not misuse my name. Keep the Sabbath holy. Honor your father and mother. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Do not covet your neighbours, etc. They're the big ten. They're the big ten. They're the ones that people heard in a deafening voice from the mountain. So, so why are they good? Well, firstly, there is no other God. So don't muck around with them. Fair enough. Don't make an idol. Uh, I was trying to work out an analogy for this the other day. Uh, An idol was like a mobile phone that had one number only dialed into it for your specialist. Okay, now I'll try and explain this. So I've got a a sore hip, say, right? Well, I have the the hip specialist on this hip mobile phone. So I pick it up, press one button, and it dials up the hip specialist, and he'll look at that. Now, if I've got something wrong with my teeth, I've got the dentist mobile phone over here, and that's got one number on it. I press that, and I get my dentist. Now, here's the thing. In the ancient world, all sorts of different parts of your life were controlled by different gods. You with me? And your idol is a direct way to dial up the god that you want to speak to about that problem. Make sense? Okay, so you've got multiple idols and multiple gods, and they're all trying to control your world. Because when I place the call, the idol is obligated to do something for me. I'm in charge. I'm picking up the phone and calling them. Hey, you better, better sort out my wheat field or whatever it is that needs to get sorted out, right? Now, here's the thing. God says, I'm not having an idol. I'm not having an idol because I'm not a specialist. I'm a generalist. I'm a GP, okay? I've got everything covered, all right? Um, and I'm not... I'm not beholden to you. You don't get to pick something up and, and make me obligated to you. That's not the way it works. So you will have no idols. You won't think you're in control of me. Makes sense, doesn't it? He's the king, you're the lesser. Next he says, do not misuse my name. In other words, you don't say, um, I don't know, this is, maybe you've met people who do this, I swear on my mother's grave. Yeah? Um, I w- you won't use the name of the living God to secure your truthfulness. He's not at your disposal. Don't do it. His name is holy and set apart. Uh, Fourthly, keep the Sabbath day holy. Um, I love this one. Uh, God rested on the seventh day. That's excellent. Uh, He tells his people, you will follow my pattern to remember that you were, Matthew is reminding me of this morning, to remember that you were slaves in Egypt. Take a rest on one of these days. On top of that, why would, I, why would God tell people that they have to have a rest every seven days? I'll tell you what. Every time I have to have a rest, have a day off, it's an act of faith. Because I don't have enough time to do all the work I need to do. And so if I stop working, 
for a day, I am fundamentally recognising that the outcomes that I need to achieve are not in my hands but God's. Because while I flog myself to bits day in, day out, I'm in charge of my destiny and I'll work hard as I can to make whatever I need to do happen. But if I set aside a day a week where I don't work, I have to trust that God's got this stuff, that he's in charge. So I actually think God was instituting an act of trust into the heart of the Ten Commandments. It had all sorts of other things that it was doing, but that particularly. Uh, Honour your father and mother. Now, we all innately know that's a good idea, don't we? That's good. Um, But it was also good because kids had to look after their parents in their old age because there was no social security. You must honour your father and mother. Israel will be a place where parents are taken care of. Not just where kids don't talk back to their parents. And that'll apply. Uh, Do not murder. This is not uh, terribly difficult to understand. Uh, Although the point is very very clear. You shouldn't uh, enviously, uh, terribly take the life of another. It's not saying that there'll be no death involved. Did you notice before that they were to shoot with arrows the people who went up on the mountain? It can't be a direct contradiction of that, right? But it's when you selfishly take the life of another, you're at odds with this command. Does that make sense? Do not commit adultery. Um, it's really interesting. Notice this. What's adultery next to just here? I don't think there was any correlation physically in the Ten Commandments. Hey, Zach. Um, but here's the thing. When I take up an idol, here's what I'm doing. I'm committing spiritual adultery. I'm committing spiritual adultery. I'm saying, hey, Zach. I'm saying one God is not good enough for me. I will not be faithful to my God. I will prostitute myself with idols. Why do not commit adultery? Because faithfulness should be built into the heart of God's people. You ought to be faithful to the one that you're married to. Do not steal. Uh, Interestingly, I've just confirmed that we're not uh, imagining a communist state. Throw that in for you. Think about it. Uh, Do not give false testimony. Uh, A civil society depends on the fact that we can judge people and they're obligated to tell the truth and that liars will get found out. If that isn't the case, the whole thing falls on its head. You've got to do that. Uh, And lastly, do not covet your neighbours, etc. And, you know, oxen, I know. I know you've been looking at your neighbours' oxen. You need to stop. Okay. Um, Now, the the point here is, is is a really good one. Uh, you should not spend your time obsessing over the things that are not yours. You, you must spend your time dealing with the things that are yours in ways that are faithful and honouring to Yahweh. That's very straightforward. But, gee, we need to struggle with it, don't we? Our, our mental screensaver doesn't need to go to things we don't have that are someone else's. It needs to tune in to thankfulness and devotion to our, our Heavenly Father. So... Uh, do not covet your neighbour's oxen, etc., was the command that he gave uh, to, uh, to the people. All right, so we've got ten commandments. Uh, does anyone know how many commandments we get to in the Old Testament? Correct. It does depend how you count. Thank you, Matthew. Uh, the, the magical number that I've been told is 613. Now, this is just, I'm just going to chuck this in there. I didn't check this out, but I just thought it was too cool to, to throw away. Uh, Someone has done, oh, yeah, 613, yeah. Uh, look, there are 365 days in the year and 248 bones in the human body, and that's why it's 613. <laughs> anyway, there you go, uh, 613. That's a big number. Uh, that is a big, big number. I want to tell you about the way these laws are constructed. Um, our laws, our laws 
tend to be exhaustive, which means that they go this, 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 and if you thought about this, then that, and you can't do this, and you can't do that, and then, and we just have this massive, that's why we've got bookshelves and bookshelves, right, of laws. Laws for property, laws for people, family laws. It's just never-ending. Because every time someone finds an issue, we write a new law to catch it, right? So our laws are exhaustive. This law here, the Ten Commandments and the 613, are not intended to be like that. They are designed to, be, to extrapolate. Now, what are, we, what are we talking about there? Let me show you what I mean. Two, two, two different things. In an exhaustive law set, what you do is look for law... In an exhaustive law set, what you look for are loopholes. Ah, if I'm standing on one leg and the wind is blowing in this direction, I'm not covered by the law, so I can do this thing, right? So when you've got an exhaustive law, you're looking for loopholes. God gave them a law, even 630 of them, and the idea was that it was supposed to give them logical lines to fill in the gaps. So if God didn't specifically tell you not to cover your neighbour two houses away stuff, ah, see, they're not my neighbour, that's the person who lives three doors away, so that's okay. The, the, the law is, is intended to cover that because God said covering is out and you're supposed to be able to extrapolate, follow the logical lines and work out you clearly can't cover it at all. It's not good. Rather than being able to find a loophole and say, aha, but... So God's law is actually done differently. The people were to work it out. What is this applying to? If I find a gap, rather than going, I'm actually supposed to go, ah, I wonder what laws apply to help me figure out what to do in this gap. Does that make sense? You're a bit sceptical. Okay, well, hang with me. So God gives them this law, and he speaks in awesome fire and power from the mountain. Have a look with me at Exodus 20, 20. Moses said to the people, this is really cool, just notice this. Moses said to the people, uh, do not be afraid. Sure. God has come to test you, so the fear of God will be with you to keep you from sinning. Did you get that? Don't be afraid. The fear of God is supposed to keep you from sinning. What? I'm not quite sure. What, what does it mean? Well, I want to think just very, very quickly about this idea of fear. What kind of fear are we supposed to have? I think we've watered down fear, and I've probably been guilty of this myself, watered down fear to be respect. Dip the lid to God. Hey, God, well done. Good to have you being God. That's fine. I think there's a real sense in which it's supposed to be knee-knockingly scary to come into the presence of God. And the point is, if you hear this law, if you see this God, this fear, nice, is supposed to be think twice before you sin fear. Think twice before you sin fear, right? It's a good idea not to commit adultery. Be faithful to your husband or wife. It'll work out better in your home. And on top of that, the second reason is you do not want to face the living God having done that. Don't do it because it's good. Don't do it because God explicitly tells you not to and he is fearsome. There's a genuine sense in which fear is supposed to keep us from sinning. Think twice before you sin, fear. So what does it mean for Israel to sign up, to say, yes, we are in? Have a look what they do in 19, 7 and 8. In 19, 7 and 8, they do this. Uh, so Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, we will do everything the Lord has said. 
So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. Now, of all the things they could have said, yeah, we think this is a pretty good suggestion. We'll think it over in the club and come back to you, God. They said, no, we will do everything that you have commanded. And God says, done. Let that be ratified. So what does that mean for Israel? Well, if we look at my overview of the, uh, the Old and New Testaments here, uh, we've got the Ten Commandments in here. And what it means, basically, them saying yes to God at this point here, is that from this point in Israel's history, when they receive the Ten Commandments, everything will be worked out as to whether they have been true to the law that God gave them. So what happens? They don't trust him. They wander in the desert for 40 years. They go into the promised land and they obey God at the start. And then God gives them kings and the kings disobey him. They disobey the law of the Lord. And so God says, well, because you've disobeyed me, you're going to lose the promised land and go into exile. But if you repent, I will bring you home again. You see, the whole rest of the Old Testament is built around Israel's response to this law. Israel has obligated themselves to the law. So here's the question. So Christians, Christians have to obey the law. Do Christians have to obey the law? And we can have an open forum and we can do that, but I don't have enough time, so I'm going to presume an answer for you. I want you to jump to Romans chapter 7 with me. Are you going to actually have to get your Bibles and jump them over? Uh, can someone call out the page number when we get there? That would be very helpful. Was it? 1132. Oh, 1131 for verse 1. Fantastic. Excellent. Uh, Paul in Romans is writing to the church in Rome and helping a group of people who have a Jewish background with, I think, some Gentiles thrown in, understand how to work with the fact that Jesus has come and broken in to be the fulfilment of the Jewish religion. What does it look like to live as a church when Jesus has come? And so Paul's in the middle of an argument here and he says this. Do you not know, brothers and sisters, from speaking to those who know the law, must be Jews, right? Speaking to those who know the law, that the law has authority over someone only as long as that person lives. So the point's a very obvious one. When you're alive, the law applies to you. When you're dead, it doesn't. You with me? It's not very complex, is it? That's the point we need at this point in the sermon. Very good. Okay, we've got it. We, we understand. No problems. So then he says... Have a look, we come down to verse 4. So my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law through the body of Christ that you might belong to another, to him who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. For when we were in the realm of the flesh, the sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in us, so that we bore fruit for death. What's it saying? That the law caused me to sin. Once someone said, don't covet, all I could do is think about coveting. It's like, don't think of pink elephants. Gracious, I'm thinking about pink elephants. Uh, the law caused me to sin, but have a look. But now, by dying to watch what once bound us, we've been released from the law so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So what's the point here? Okay, um, Matthew did a really helpful diagram for us a little while ago, uh, last week, of us passing through the sea. Do you remember he talked about going through the sea of judgment? And then he talked about our baptism. In baptism, we die to our own life, our old life, and we're raised to a new life. 
We've left the old behind and we have a new life in the spirit. What does that mean? We are free from what used to bind us. The law doesn't apply because you died. Did, did you die? Is anyone here? No, no, we haven't died. But we've died spiritually with Jesus. The old is gone. The new has come. So Paul is saying here, the law doesn't apply to those who have died already. Okay, so that's cool. So we just throw out our Old Testaments. No problems. No. Bear with me. So how are we to read the law? Well, first place to look, of course, is to Jesus, who does a pretty good job of it. Someone asked him, okay, Jesus, I've got 613 laws in my, in my back pocket. I'd really like to trip, trip you up. Can you tell us which one is the most important one? Now, I just, want to, I just want to encourage you. This is a Jesus answer. He's pretty clever because he doesn't come up with one. Notice what he says. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? I'm reading from Matthew 22. Jesus replied, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbour as yourself. Jesus is so smooth, he gets a second one in for the greatest commandment. Uh, the, the point here is that Jesus has done a distillation thing. He said, actually, I can pull it down. I can crunch it down in this way. So let's have a look at it. Uh, we start with 10, the big 10. And then God expands it out to 613. So you kind of go, all right, I know what to do with oxen who have fallen down. I do. And I know what to do if someone punches out a tooth. And I know what to do if someone uh, claims to be a uh, not committed murder. And I know what to do with shellfish. And I know what to do about clothing. I've got this massive picture of what God's holy people are supposed to look like. And then Jesus says, actually, do you know what? I can just pull that all in for you. And I can say it's summed up like this in these two here. Now the point is, the summary doesn't make much sense without the expansion. So we, we, I did this thing on my Facebook page, which is still going, uh, where I said to people, give us a quote that sums up the movie. So, so one of them was, I am your father, Luke. Right? And you'll look at me blankly. If you've never heard that before, right? you'll look at me and go, what does that mean? Does anyone know what it means? Darth Vader, Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back. There's a, I mean, but, but here's the thing. As, as you say that, right? For those people who know, giddy up, that's great. That's that fearsome moment where you figure out Darth Vader is Luke's father and no. Anyway, you, you, you're with me, right? Okay. So, so, so here's the thing. It's utterly incomprehensible without the big, the big version. But if you know the big version, the summary makes sense. For the Christian to go, oh yeah, there's two commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul and strength and love the Lord, uh, love your neighbour as yourself. We can go, oh yeah, I think I understand everything. But if you've never read the Old Testament, you've got no idea how far-reaching love for neighbour is. Or how all-encompassing love for God is. And so it serves as a brilliant summary if you know the expanded version. Are you with me? So Christians... You need to know the big version to get the beauty of the latte or whatever it is. Uh, what, what, what's a little tiny coffee called? Espresso. Espresso. You need to... Yeah, anyway, you get it. Uh, so, so the point is, you've got to know the big in order to make sense of the summary. And so I'd say to you guys, have you read your Old Testaments? We're stumbling through the Ten Commandments. And there's 613. We've got a lot of work to do, don't we? 
in order to get what the summary means. I love this verse. I want, I want you to have a look at it with me. I'm sorry to flip you one more time. We're going to go to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And I've got a couple more points and we're done. 2 Timothy chapter 3. I want you to see this verse because it should be really uh, highlighted in your Bibles, highlighted in our Bibles if you've got one of ours. Here's what it says. 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verses 14 to 17. Uh, Paul is writing to a guy called Timothy, his young Padawan, <laughs> and, uh, and he's giving him some tips on, on how to live. He says this. As for you, continue in what you've learned and become convinced of, because you know those from whom you learned it, and how from infancy you've known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Basically, he says, if you know your Old Testament, you're going to know about trusting in Jesus. But here's the thing. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to throw out your Old Testament? The Bible says don't. It contains things in it that are useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training and righteousness. You've got to know your Old Testament. And so here's what I think we've got to do to engage with the Old Testament. You ready? This is my summary. Four, four points. We've got to drink in the world that this was written to. We've got to understand the world it was written to. Drink it in. Get in the headspace of the world. It's an ancient world. It's where we own lambs with fat tails that we can offer as fat offerings to God. It's, it's a place where we live with, uh, with uh, Canaanites around us and Hittites. It's a place. Get in the brain of the place that this was originally written. Drink it in. I want you to think, why did God give this Old Testament law? What was he trying to do with it? So drink in their world and then in their world think... Why was he concerned about this? What was it that he had in mind when he spoke this commandment? So drink, think, learn. What does this commandment tell me about God, his character, the things he's concerned about? What does it tell me about people, about how they relate to one another? Learn about God and learn about people. Lastly, the hard bit is to discern extrapolate, make the logical lines. If God's like that then, what should I do now? If people are like that then, what should I do now? If God was like that, we need to do the hard work of discerning how this applies, rather than just picking it up and saying, uh, you know, I need to something in there. Throw me a random law from someone. Someone got a good... Sorry? Don't eat shellfish. Very good. Uh, why, why has God on about that? Uh, we've got to do the hard work of thinking that through and then work out how it applies rather than just saying it applies to me or it doesn't apply to me by some different thing. So drink it in. Think about why God gave it. Learn about the people of God uh, and about God himself and discern what we should now do. Well, let me take it home. If you're sitting here this morning and you have not chosen to follow the living God, then I think you can start with the Ten Commandments And you can have a look at the standard that God spoke to his people and weigh up whether you would claim to walk boldly into the presence of that God. I've done this with a lot of people. You will join me utterly devastated at how badly you fail with only ten commandments on the table. We fall short. We stand before an awesome, fearsome God. 
And you must not presume to come to him thinking that you'll be okay. Turn to Jesus, God's offer of forgiveness. Secondly, for those of us who do know the living God, I want you to do this hard work of understanding the breadth of the Old Testament law that we might live the summary with discernment and hearts of worship. Lord, give us the energy, the hard work, the passion, the devotion, the love to worship you with holy fear. So what have we done today? Well, we've met our dad and he's been giving his people in Sinai the rules of the house, telling his people how to live. I want us to be people who will serve the same awesome living God with holy fear to worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these 10 commandments, for these 613 commandments, for the wonderful way you, the awesome, mighty God, engage with your people. I pray that we wouldn't waltz into your presence, Father, thinking that we'll be okay, but we'll come with holy fear, trusting that Jesus has forgiven us and working out what it means to be the kingdom of priests that you called us to be as well. Pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's his uh, Care Connect cards. Uh, can you grab that out? Um, we'd love you to fill that out. We'll give you fingers to do that. Uh, communicate with us if you've got things you'd like us to pray for, Stuart.